If you would, take your Bibles and turn over to Psalm 63. That's where we're going to be together this morning. Psalm 63, which is known as a praise psalm. The last several weeks and the next couple weeks after this one, we've been looking at psalms that are known as lament psalms, psalms that complain, actually just pour out some sort of struggle or hardship to God, either about oneself and struggles with sin or about one's enemies and their power to, 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 to hurt, to wound, or even struggles with God who seems distant sometimes and, and uh, far removed from what I'm facing in my life. We've been looking at lament psalms lately and we're going to continue to look at more here in the next couple of weeks, but in the middle of it I wanted to drop in another praise psalm and not just any praise psalm, but right here surrounded by laments on all sides is a praise psalm that that uh, English poet and pastor John Donne called the spirit and soul of the whole book of the Psalms. In Psalm 63, he said, the spirit and soul of the whole book is contracted. And I think he's right. One of the things we've been saying about the Psalms is that where other parts of the Bible often tell us what God is like, they give us true things about his character or about the things that he's done in the Psalms, We get to know what it's like to know him. Other Psalms tell us what he's like. This, or other parts of the Bible rather, tell us what he's like. The the Psalms show us what it's like to know him from the experience of people who knew him and whose experience gives us a taste of what it would be like for us to know him in a way that's personal and direct. This praise psalm is not like some other praise psalms that list off a lot of God's attributes that make him praiseworthy. This one praises him just by telling him there is nothing else in the, in the world that compares to knowing you. It's a praise psalm that is a lot like the difference between, uh, this difference that I'm illustrating here, that just to illustrate it. It's one thing if you, if you take up a, a menu or some sort of online description of a restaurant's burger and you read about what f- local farm supplied the meat. Maybe you read some sort of trademark local cheese that's slapped on top of it or some Benton's bacon or some sort of, some sort of arugula tossed in some sort of sauce that'll be plopped down on top of the bacon, some sort of aioli spread on the the handmade bun. It's one thing to read all of that. Actually, it can be encouraging and enlightening and tell you that you want to go and eat it. It's another thing, though, to have your buddy tell you, you you have got to try this burger. Look, There's no way I can describe it to you that will capture what this burger actually is. You you just have to try it. Many of you have received recommendations like that from me over the years. I've got a new one for you. Come talk to me after the service. Try this burger two two or three months ago. There's no way I can describe this burger that will make it sound as good as it is. You just have to go taste it. That's kind of what David is doing in this praise psalm. He's not really listing off things that are true about God. He does to some extent. But mostly, he's just telling you, you've got to try it. There's nothing else in the world that's like the experience of this person in your life. This is a psalm about what it is to experience God. Not just to know about Him, but to know Him. And it's a psalm that describes the experience of God a lot like I might describe a great burger. What I want to do this morning is just help you to see it, to see why we must experience God 
Why the psalm is pointing us towards the absolute, irreplaceable necessity of experiencing God in your life, not just knowing about Him. And then talk mostly, spend most of our time talking about how can we experience God. That's what this psalm is here to help us do. The psalm wants to take us into an experience of God that, that maybe you haven't had before and that maybe is the thing you've been missing in your life. I want to begin by reading the whole thing. Then I'm going to take a couple of minutes and just pass over a couple of highlights that will help set the stage, and then we'll go deeper into it. If you would, please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read Psalm 63, a praise psalm attributed to David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. This is the word of the Lord. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed. And meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king, the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is God's word. You can be seated. We're going to spend most of our time this morning focusing on the first eight verses of this psalm. The psalm ends, you may have noticed, with a a prayer or an expression of confidence that God's going to destroy the enemies who stand against God's king. We talked a lot about that last week. We took a psalm last week that was all about enemies and a prayer that those enemies would be destroyed. So if if you have questions about the last several verses of this psalm, I want to refer you to some audio from that sermon that's available on the website that I think will help you understand what's going on there. I want to, for for the brief time we have together this morning, really drill down on the first eight verses of this psalm and talk about what it is to experience God. I want to start with just a couple of general observations about what David has said here. This psalm is telling us that we must experience God. It's essential that we experience Him because nothing else will ever satisfy our souls. Nothing but a personal and direct experience of God and His love is going to satisfy us because we were made for nothing less than that. I'm going to work this out a little bit. I want to first make sure it's clear to you what I mean when I say experience God. And that's what this whole psalm is about. I want to make sure you know what I mean by that, what David is getting at. When the psalmist describes what it is to know God, did you notice 
Just real high level here. Quick pass over the verses that we read. Did you notice that when he describes what it's like to know God, he's using language of sense experience? So in verse 1, he talks about thirsting after God. The sense of, 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 of taste, of drinking something in. Then in verse 2, he talks about looking on God, about beholding his power and his glory. It's as if he can actually see him with his eyes. He's using the language of of the sense of sight. Verse 5, he talks about being satisfied with God as with rich food. Again, back to to tasting him. And then then verse 8, or you could back it up into verse 7 too, to hover under huddled rather under God's wings and to to cling to him and to be upheld by God's hand is the sense of touch his nearness he's touching me wrapping me up protecting me why this language all this sense language I think it's because of the knowledge of God that that the, the writer of this psalm is craving and what he knows what he's actually experienced in his own life And the kind of knowledge of God that's celebrated all through the Bible, not just in the Psalms, but but all through the Bible as something that's possible for all of us, it is far more than just intellectual or cognitive knowledge. It's never less than that. But it is far more than just understanding something true about God. The knowledge that the Bible celebrates and that this psalmist has had for himself and wants us to have is the knowledge of direct experience. It's the kind of knowledge that comes through the senses, not just through the mind. One of my favorite pastors, Jonathan Edwards, talked about the importance of a spiritual sense. It's a lot like physical senses, things that you touch or taste or hear. But there's a kind of spiritual sense where you perceive something true in the spiritual realm that you need if you want to experience God in the way that you were made to experience him. You can know a person through the mind from anywhere at any time. Across space and across time, I can know Martin Luther King Jr. Or I can know Davy Crockett. Or I can know Hank Aaron. But then there's a knowing someone like I know my family. Like I know my friends. And that means I got to hear them. I got to see them. I have to touch them. To really know somebody, in that sense, they have to be near to you. They have to be directly accessible to you. And that's what the psalmist gets from God. And that's what this psalm is telling us we can have too. This is the kind of relationship he has. And psalms are full of language like this. This is not unique. Psalm 27 One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Forever, all the days of my life. Why? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. To see with some sort of spiritual sense. To actually see directly his beauty. Psalm 65. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house. Or Psalm 84. A day in your courts... It's better than a thousand days somewhere else. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness, he says. The Psalms are full of language like this about what you get, what you perceive 
when you experience the presence of God in your life. And it's the kind of knowledge that Paul prays for in Ephesians 1 when he prays that his friends will have the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they can know the hope of their calling. That's a knowledge that depends on a heart that sees, on a spiritual sense that is alive and engaged with truth about God. So as one person put it, one pastor put it, with, with a kind of intellectual knowledge of God, you grasp true things about God. It's important. Got to start there. But with the knowledge of faith, the truth about God grasps you. You see the difference? With an intellectual knowledge about God, we just come to understand true things about Him from His Word. You come to grasp truth. That's good. It's a starting place. But with this kind of knowledge, well, the truth about God grasps you. That's what it means to experience experience God. And this psalm is here to help us see that nothing else is going to satisfy us. I want to make sure that's clear before we move into how to experience him. This is something David assumes is as basic to human life, as fundamental and primal a human need as water itself. The language throughout this whole psalm, it starts with craving after God and thirsting after Him and moving on to feasting on Him. It points to something else the psalmist knows about us from his own experience. This experience of God is not optional. It's not something that you can take or leave. It isn't just sort of a niche market uh, good that's out there for those who choose to take it. Maybe for you, maybe not. This kind of direct knowledge of God is what you were made to enjoy. It's fundamental. It's one reason David starts the psalm where he does. You are my God. He starts there. It's the fundamental thing below everything else. You are the one and the only. You are everything. That's why I seek you earnestly. That's why I thirst for you. That's why your love is better than life. That's why I'm satisfied only in you. Worship like this. To seek after and to know God as, as the soul's only satisfaction. This kind of worship is what we were made for. I think that, the, that, that tying it back to his thirst or to his feasting shows us that the soul was made for the worship of God like, body, like the body was made for water. So it's not enough to know that water is made up of hydrogen and oxygen. It's not enough to know that water covers more than 70% of the world's surface. It's one thing to know that the body makes up roughly 60% of the, or excuse me, that water makes up roughly 60% of the human body. Those things are true and interesting, important to know. But not enough. You have to actually drink water in order to survive. You have to experience water directly and by your senses, not merely by your mind. That is how you live. And the soul was made for the worship of God like the body was made for water. It's a primal need, whether you recognize it or not. So before we move into how to do it, I want to ask you, could it be, friend, especially if you're not a Christian here this morning, could it be that you haven't found what you're looking for yet? Because there's a need in you, a craving in you that only one resource will satisfy and it's a resource you haven't tried. 
This psalm, I think, is pointing us to something the whole Bible teaches. That is that there is something in you that only God will satisfy. That you need to live in the same way that the body needs water. And if you keep looking for satisfaction in all sorts of other places, you're not going to find it. You'll be like a hamster on a wheel for the rest of your life, always thinking that satisfaction lies just outside of your reach in something you haven't tried yet. The only relief that you're ever going to find is when you realize that you were made to know and enjoy not just something more, but someone, some irreplaceable person, someone whose love for you is better than life. That's what verse 3 says. It's what David realized. God's steadfast love for him is better than life. And he learned that from experience. And that's why he's not looking anywhere else. And if you're a Christian this morning, I want to ask you, before we go any further, this connection to God that David's talking about, this sense experience of him, this direct and satisfying and almost physical enjoyment of him. Do you have that kind of connection to God? Is that something you've tasted? If it isn't something you enjoy now, do you still want to enjoy it? Do you even expect that it's possible for you to enjoy something like that? Is it possible that you've grown comfortable with far less than what's available to you? That that you've been sort of snacking on tasty snacks, spoiling your appetite for dinner? I want you to hold that question in your mind while we move into the meat of this psalm. So this psalm is is mostly one man explaining his experience with God, the satisfaction that he got from knowing God directly and personally. And I think the reason that God has placed this in the collection for us is so that we can follow his lead. One of the things we've been saying about the psalms all along is that they're models for us. They're not just interesting records of one person's experience. They're put here so that we can share that experience. And in this psalm, I believe we've got not necessarily a step-by-step roadmap to getting the the direct and personal experience that David had, but at least uh, some signposts pointing the way. At least he puts us in the right frame of mind for what we should be looking for if we want to experience God like this. I don't think the point of this psalm is is to depress you, (laughs) to notice that David had something you don't have, and to wish that you had more of it. I do think it's here partly to help us see that there's a gap often between what this man experienced and what we do. But it's also meant to point us toward the experience that he had so that we can have it for ourselves. And, and I want to I spend most of our time this morning pushing down into the details of this psalm. Because I think once we do that, I think you're going to see there's a couple really important insights here for us if we want to experience God. And I want to try to pull those out under the two categories, the category of craving and the category of feasting. Those are the ones that David uses. He starts with his craving for God. And then he moves into his feasting on God. And we want to follow him there. If we want to experience God, we've got to do that through a craving for him, a lot like what the psalmist had. 
And if we want to experience God, it will look like feasting on him in the same way that the psalmist did. So we want to understand this craving, and then we want to understand what it looks like to feast on him. Let's start with craving. Did you notice, as we read through the psalm, when David starts celebrating God's love in verse 3, when he says in verse 2 that he's seen him, he's seen his power and his glory, and then he's, he says that he, that he makes this statement about God's love that it's better even than life itself and starts to praise him for it. That this praising comes right after his craving, this debilitating thirst that he has. It's after his thirst that he comes to see God. I don't think that connection is accidental. It's after he's been thirsty, clinging to life in the wilderness, that he makes what seems to me to be the central statement of the whole song. Your love is better than life. He's praising God because being loved by God is better than anything else he could ever experience. How did he learn that? How did he learn that it's better to be loved by God than anything else he could ever experience in his life? Really? Seriously? Better to be loved by God than to have power? Better than the praise of other people? Better than sex? Better than whatever money can buy? Better than life? David says, yes. And he learned that in the wilderness. He learned that in the wilderness where he saw his truest and most basic need. Most of us will never know what it really is to be thirsty. I mean, we, we thirst. But we'll never know what it is to be days removed from our last drink and on the edge of death. David knew that. He'd been there. You ever read the description, somebody's self-description of what it's like to be that thirsty, to be on the edge? I remember... One of those vivid that I have in my mind is uh, the Unbroken book. You guys know Unbroken, that bestseller about uh, Louis Zamperini's struggle to survive when he went down in the Pacific Ocean during World War II. His plane was shot down. He survived a long time on, on sea. Uh, he had no water. It's just salt water everywhere. You can't drink it. There's this long chapter just describing the physical effects of going without water. It was nothing. You can go without food for a long time, and he did. But you can't go that long without water, especially not when you're out on a raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with nothing to block you from the sun that beats down on you all day, every day, like he did. What it came to for him, trying to capture the water through the, these creative things that he would create, that, that he would come up with, that would that the, the rainwater would, would pour into, and he would capture just a couple of drops, and that'd be what he was craving, is just some drop on my tongue. What it does to your tongue to be that thirsty. I mean, I'm going to stop right there. You guys go read this for yourself if you want to. User's option. It's not pleasant, though. It's miserable. But I'll tell you this. When Louis Zamperini was on that, on that raft, a couple days in without water, baked by the sun, he wasn't thinking about what kind of car he might get for himself when he got back home. He wasn't thinking about his house. He wasn't thinking about any rewards that he might win. He wasn't even probably thinking about relationships and what he's hoping for in them. He was thinking about one thing and about one thing only, water. 
he learned on that raft what he really needed above all to survive. And that's exactly what David has learned in his wilderness. In his wilderness, stripped away with the praise he might get for being a great writer of psalms or for being a mighty warrior on the battlefield. Stripped away where the power, the thoughts of power and what it would mean to sit on the throne. Stripped away, surely, in those moments where even the relationships that were both his, among his greatest blessings and curses throughout his life. In the wilderness, David learned from experience what his most basic need was. He was thirsty for God. And sometimes, God withholds his presence from our lives. A sense of his presence, I should say. He's always here. He withholds a sense of his presence from our lives to show us how badly we need his presence. To show us that nothing in life compares to him. That apart from him, nothing's any good. Nothing has any taste. Nothing satisfies. Otherwise, if he doesn't do that to us, if he doesn't strip us all away so that we, have, we are craving the one thing we can't do without, we're going to take him for granted. Like most of us take water for granted and sort of assume that we have it and move on to stressing about or seeking after other things. Right? How often do you think about whether you can get some water? There's a fountain right out here in the hall. If you're thirsty right now, you can go out there and get some. Most of us just assume water in our lives and we spend our time turning on other things. The same thing holds true in our relationship with God. If he, if he doesn't withhold sometimes the sense of his presence, we'll take him for granted and use him as a means to some other end. And we're always going to be evaluating him, not on who he is in himself and the sweetness of knowing him and having him in your life, but, but based on how well he delivers the other things that we want. So I want to tell you this. If you're not experiencing God in the way that David did, if you don't feel this direct connection to him that David is celebrating, don't despair. It may be a good thing, even a gift that God is giving you in your life right now. And part of the path, a necessary part of the path to you actually experiencing him. I do want to give you some encouragement, though. If you're not experiencing God like David did, if you're not satisfied with him, like somebody who's just finished off a big meal, what do you do? What do you do if this experience is not yours right now? I want to just give you a couple of quick things to encourage you before we look at what it looks like to feast on God. If this is where you are, if you are not experiencing God like this, then I'm going to give you three quick things that that you can do. And the first one is this. Maybe it sounds obvious, but I think it's really important, and David models it here for us here. You've got to keep on seeking him. If you're not experiencing this connection to God that David was, seek him earnestly like David did. Seek him with a kind of single-minded focus. Keep worshiping him with his body, the church, where he shows up. Keep listening for him in his word where he speaks to his people. Keep talking honestly to him in prayer. You don't feel anything? Uh, 
That's not good. It's not what we want, but it's also not the end. It's not over yet. Listen to this psalm and to the experience of other faithful Christians and, and even remember from your own experience, perhaps. This sort of knowledge of God is expected for his people and keep on seeking it until you get it. Just don't sell for anything less. And that brings up the second thing. The second encouragement I'd give you is don't seek anything else. Keep on seeking him. If you're not feeling this kind of direct connection to God, don't seek anything else in the meantime. That's where a lot of us get, I think, off track is that we, we, we want to go for a quick fix rather than earnestly seeking him in a way that treats him like there's nothing else that will ever satisfy me. A lot of times we, we settle for lesser satisfactions, for distractions, for the sort of things often that this wilderness experience is meant to strip away from us. So we'll, we'll, we'll satisfy our appetites with a lot of other things that are ultimately just going to make us more thirsty. One pastor put it, it's like throwing pretzels to the thirsty person. There's a craving for spiritual experience all around us. It's all through the culture. It's, it shows up in our TV shows and in bestsellers on the, on the rack at Barnes & Noble. It shows up in all sorts of, uh, of ways and in your life too, I'm sure. A, cr- a quest, a, a craving even for something more than what you're experiencing now. But what this psalm is saying is that if you don't try to quench that thirst with Jesus, if you go anywhere else but in, you're just going to be munching on salty pretzels when what you need is water. Don't seek anything else. And finally, be hopeful. What you're experiencing now, if you're not experiencing anything, does not have to be a detour. You could be, friend, you could be on the necessary path, experiencing a necessary part of your journey to God. It could be, like I've already said, that this is how he shows you what you really want and how he keeps you from trusting anything else. In other words, it could be this distance that you feel is his gift to you. I don't know what he's doing in your life. I don't know why you're missing what you're missing, if that's where you are. I don't know why your prayers aren't answered or why your heart isn't changing. And I do know from my own experience For much of my life, my experience of God is far different from what David had. That that can be deeply frustrating and psalms like this one can actually seem to make things worse. Because it just reminds me that other people are getting what I don't have. But there's a kind of hope that's available to you right here, right now. Simply by hoping in Him. In one of his letters in 1 John... The Apostle John wrote, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So he's looking ahead to something that's coming. He's trusting it. He wants it. He says that we know that when he appears, when God comes back for us, we will be like him. Because we will see him as he is directly. We'll have that sense experience of him without any mediator, with nothing in between us. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. And in the meantime, John writes, chapter 3, verse 3, everyone who hopes in him in this way purifies himself as he is pure. I think John is saying there is that hoping even for an experience of God you are not having right now, purifies your heart. It's an expression of 
confidence that even if I'm not there right now, I know nothing else is worth my time, my affection, my attention. And that in itself is purifying you and preparing you to see him as he is and to be made like him. I don't often quote long quotes from old hymns for a lot of the obvious reasons. I'm going to do that right now, though. There's there's an old hymn by John Newton, same guy that wrote Amazing Grace. It's not as well known, not near as well known as Amazing Grace, of course, but not even well known among John Newton's other writings. He was a pastor, slave trader, turned converted pastor uh, in England, wrote several hymns. One of my favorites, maybe even more beloved to me now than, than Amazing Grace, is one just known by the first line of the song, I Ask the Lord, It's the title of it. And it's, it's not really a hymn that we often would sing, or at, probably in, in, in a church service, because it's very personal, and it's describing his experience. It almost reads like a song. He's describing his experience of not having God's presence when he thought he was doing everything he could to get it, and he was just praying for it, and he doesn't understand why God's not listening to him. And, and what he learned from God through this season of his craving. Listen to, listen to what Newton wrote. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I think Newton had this psalm in mind when he wrote those lines. So imagine this prayer as a prayer prayed to God in good times. Give me more. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, from Psalm 63, from the Sermon on the Mount. And he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. That's what he hoped for. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed. Blasted my gourds, Google it, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Why? I just asked you to give me more of you. Why are you laying me low? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answered prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. It may be that God is answering your prayer right now. Be hopeful. How do we experience God? Like David did? Well, friends, it starts with craving. It's not pleasant. Any more than it's pleasant to be stuck on a raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, beat by the sun with nothing to drink. But it's a path to life. I want to finish by looking at what it looks like to feast on him, though. Because that's where David goes next, and that's where he spends most of his time. 
He's told God that his steadfast love, his love for David, to be loved by God is better than life. And then in verse 5, he tells us something of how he got there. What it looks like for him to actually feast on and directly experience this God whose love is better than life. He says in verse 5, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So far, so good. Here we've shifted from his longing to his confidence and satisfaction. What does it look like to experience God like this? Well, I don't know. I don't know that it makes, looks the same for everybody. Different people can have different experiences. But if David is our model, if we're going to follow him to his experience of feasting on God, then I think what you'll notice is that it looks a lot more straightforward than you might have expected. He's not whisked to another place out of body. He's not put into some sort of trance-like state. When David tells us about his feasting, the satisfaction that he gets from God, look at where it comes from. Look at verse 6 and verse 7. I will be satisfied, he says, verse 5, and I'm going to praise you with joyful lips. Verse 6 says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. I'll be satisfied when I remember. Remember what? Verse 7, you have been my help. And with you as my help, in the shadow of your wings, wrapped up by you, protected by you, loved by you, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you like there's nothing else. And your right hand upholds me. Did you notice the train of thought there? The satisfaction he's celebrating that he's so confident will be his through this direct experience of God comes not from being whisked away into this out-of-body, trance-like experience, but through remembering God's love. That's better than life. Where does your mind tend to go when you're alone? On your bed, in the watches of the night. What do you think about when you get the chance to daydream? I'm guessing many of us often, maybe most often, will go to one of two places. Maybe we imagine some sort of glory for ourselves. Classic vintage daydreams of accomplishing something great. Everybody praising you, clapping you on the back. Whether you're a kid daydreaming about storming some evil castle or a medical resident daydreaming about some breakthrough research that you hope to accomplish. I imagine a lot of us daydream about being great, being known to be great, being celebrated. That's one place we might go. The other place we might go is fear, anxiety. When we're alone with our own thoughts, no one else around, no one looking in, we churn on the things that we're afraid of or the things that are troubling us, the things that we can't escape or control. 
We think about the people whose minds we'd like to change. The people we'd love to see treat us differently. We think about the, the situations at work that are endlessly complicated that we just can't seem to think our way out of. We worry about our ability to pay the bills. We think about storms and what they'll do to a leaky roof. In the, in, in the watches of the night, alone on your bed, struggling to go to sleep, I'm guessing sometimes you turn on fear. But David, when he's all alone, when he's laying there trying to go to sleep, he's remembering He's meditating on the steadfast love that is better than life. He's not thinking about winning praise from somebody else. He's remembering that God is already delighted in him. He's not worried about all the threats that could take him out. He's remembering that God's wings are spread over him and his right hand upholds him. Where David goes when he's all alone is not to glory some triumph real or imagined and not to fear some threat that he can't face on his own. Where his mind goes is God's love for him. And that, in the memory of, the meditation upon God's love for him, David experiences God directly with a spiritual sense that is, that, is, that is fully alive, completely engaged. He feasts as with fat and rich food from his memory. It's that simple. So if we want to follow David's lead, how do we feast on God's love for us like David did? Where do we get a direct sense experience of the love of God for us. I think we can get that from remembering things that he's done for us in our past. I think we get it from looking to the life of other people and what they tell us. I think we get it from his words. We, we get it from our songs and our readings and our prayers when we're together here each week. But ultimately... Ultimately, if you want to experience and feast on God's love for you, the most direct, the most clear, and the most beautiful place for you to access this love is Jesus. A psalmist, for all the intensity of his experience, he couldn't have imagined the nearness to God that's possible now because of Jesus. Remember the difference between Knowing about someone and actually knowing someone is, is partly space. You've got to be near to somebody to be able to have this direct sense experience of them. David had that. But David had nothing compared to what we can have through Jesus. To have him become one of us. To have his spirit within us. And somehow in the mystery of the gospel to even be joined to him. And above it all, to know that all of that, him coming to us, him leaving his spirit with us, him joining us to himself, all of it was driven by a love that won't stop. 
Jesus is the clearest and nearest demonstration of God's love that anyone will ever see. And when he described what he came to do, he described himself in the language of Psalm 63. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets with this woman who's thirsty. She's a woman who'd been trying to quench an inner thirst through one marriage after another and nothing was satisfying her. Jesus knew it, called it on the spot, and he told her, stop trying to get water from this well. You, if you knew who was right in front of you, you'd ask him. And he'd give you, I'd give you, a water that'll spring up inside of you so that you'll never be thirsty again. And then, a couple chapters later, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with some food from a little boy's snack. They want more food. Jesus changes the subject. He tells them, if you knew who was in front of you, if you knew who I am, you would know I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's using the language of Psalm 63. Jesus is where you sense God in the way that David longed to. Because ultimately in Jesus, God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Where should your mind go in the watches of the night? To his steadfast love, which is better than life. Steadfast because when we ran away from him, he drew near to us. Steadfast because when we indulge ourselves on other lovers, he empties himself for his one beloved. Steadfast because when we seek approval over and over in all the wrong places, he sets his love on us anyway. By grace. And steadfast because when we are exposed to all sorts of forces that we can't control, the forces rattled off in Romans 8, as Steph read earlier, he surrounds us with a protecting love as with a pair of wings, and he promises us nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. If you want to feast on God and know that, from your own sense experience of him, then you need to meditate on Jesus because that's where he's come. That is his steadfast love. Father, help us to see it and love it because so many other things claim our attention, pull at our hearts. We've tried a lot of other things to satisfy that ache inside of us. And if I were you, I would leave us to ourselves. Thank you for a love that is steadfast, not like mine. Thank you for Jesus who has come to make you accessible. And I pray that we would know you through him in a way that captures the full beauty of what you've purchased by his blood. We want to make full use of the gift he has given to us through his life and his death and his resurrection. So we pray that by his spirit, you would give it to us in Jesus' name. Amen.